Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 268 this hand offendeth now last time we heard that the prospect of a spanish marriage and possibly the increasing suspicion that mary's nose had looked rather long when she issued her proclamation about religious toleration would lead to a spot of bother on behalf of a few noblemen poet's son thomas white in particular this held out for you the prospect of a thrilling episode of principled rebellion and daring do of the commons of England marching to protect their liberties, cry Harry, and all that sort of thing. Well, I'm not going to give you that. I am instead going to offer you a story of a very human hero. There are no heroes in the world, are there? But that does not mean there are not people we can admire for their bravery and achievements, notwithstanding their very obvious humanity and faults. Such a person, then, is Thomas Cranmer. In order to do this now, I need to mess with the chronology a bit. I'll mention, but skate over, various political and religious events to which I'll then need to come back in order to cover them more effectively. I would like to formally apologise, but you know, it's a story that deserves to be told. It's also worth mentioning that the vast majority of my information in this episode comes from the definitive and eponymous biography of Thomas Cranmer by Professor Dermot McCulloch. This book is an academic history book. It is very much in the mould of his more recent biography of Thomas Cromwell, if you've read that, which I'm confident will also become the definitive biography. Unlike that book, McCulloch's Thomas Cranmer is liberally sprinkled with wit, humour, anecdotes and stories. 
I heartily recommend it to you. Just don't expect a light read is all I'm saying. And finally, on this Thursday, the 21st of March, a significant date, I will release an interview with said Professor McCulloch, looking back across the whole life of our Thomas Cranmer. One of the points that McCulloch makes in his biography is that for the first time for 20 years in Mary's reign, Cranmer's story becomes detached from the main political story of England. When Mary rode into London, most Protestants would have been deeply nervous, and as Thomas Cranmer looked down at his feet, he might well have noticed that he appeared to be standing on an overhanging cliff edge. The ground appeared to be ungeologically crumbly in the most disconcerting of ways. You did not need to be the Archbishop of Canterbury to know that Mary would have to have been Mother Teresa, or I don't know what other saintly figure, to resist the urge to visit fire and retribution on the grey head of Thomas Cranmer. There's the obvious one. Whatever the length of her nose, Mary would surely want to take down the architect of the break with Rome and the Edwardian Reformation. But more than that, here was the man who passed judgment that the marriage of Henry and her beloved mother Catherine of Aragon should be dissolved, and thereby cast not just her mother, but also herself into the outer darkness. Mary was to prove that she was not a person to bear a grudge for a few months, when twenty years would do just as well. We know that Thomas was petrified because he wrote a letter to his pal William Cecil, who was of course busy trying to get the dust and dirt off doublet and hose from all the grovelling he'd had to do with the new Queen. And Cranmer was prepared to write, but not meet his pal, for fear of tainting his mate by his presence. By the way, before we get too far ahead in all of this, I have always wondered at what this whole business was like for Margaret Cranmer, Mrs Cranmer as it were. If the suspicions of the Protestants were confirmed and Mary did reverse the Edwardian religious settlement, clerical marriage would once more be illegal. That would mean that ministers' wives would be wives no longer and now they'd be concubines and all the offspring of such marriages would be bastards. Margaret and Thomas had a son called Thomas. They also had a daughter. I will let you know in the fullness what happens to Margaret but over the next few years there is no record at all of any contact between Margaret and her husband, though of course that may simply be because Margaret was lying low or because who needs to write a letter to your other half if you happen to be in the same place unless of course they won't give up possession of the remote control of the telly. Or it could be that letters just don't survive. But some scholars have assumed that she did a runner at this point. Either way, she must have wondered what on earth she'd done in a previous life to deserve the kind of grief her marriage had brought her. Though, of course, that would be an unlikely belief for an evangelical Christian, or indeed a Christian of any kind, but you know what I mean. Anyway, all I can say is that as far as the historical record is concerned, at this moment in time, Margaret Cranmer is a name but faintly carried on the Kentish breeze, or the breeze of Kent, depending which side of the medway the breeze came from. So, anyway... Thomas Cranmer Sr. would have been expecting to hear the sounds of the Mary Monster with eyes of flame whiffling through the Tolgy Wood, possibly burbling as she came. And yet all he could hear was a deathly hush. It was a bit odd. On the 8th of August, he even conducted the official funeral of Edward VI. Now, ominously, Mary didn't turn up, and even more ominously, she had her own Catholic Mass exercised in her private chapel, but Ambassador Renard had prevailed on her to allow the funeral to go ahead according to Edward and Cranmer's own Book of Common Prayer on the 
don't rock the boat until we're safely in the dock principle. Then on the 14th of August, writs and papers from the Queen arrived. Ah, this must surely be it. Notification of the chop, squelch, thump and all of that. But no, it was instead a writ of summons to the Parliament, to the Queen's Archbishop of Canterbury, and instructions to convene the convocation of the Church, which of course was always conducted in parallel to Parliament. So what was going on here? It's not as though Cranmer wasn't aware that leading names in the evangelical world were clutching at metaphorical necks as the nooses tightened around them. He'd heard that John Cheek, tutor to Edward VI and critically author of a letter from Jane Grey's counsel to Mary, had been indicted. It is entirely typical of our Thomas that his response to this news was to write to see if there was anything that could be done to help his friend. But Cranmer had failed in his efforts with Anne Boleyn, Somerset, Cromwell and now the fuel of influence was entirely gone from his tank. Mary would not see him, even when he went to Richmond to meet the royal party. And so aware was he of the plague that stuck to his name, that, as I said, he wouldn't even meet Cecil for fear of harming him by association. Nonetheless, the rather striking thing about Cranmer's situation in 1553 was that Mary took her time, and the surely inevitable confrontation was provoked not by Mary, in fact, but by Cranmer himself. One of the things that stayed Mary's hands was that she wanted to do things by the book, certainly through Parliament, but also through Rome. And for a few weeks this gave Cranmer an opportunity to do what 800 or more would do and run for it, run away to the confident, the Marian exiles as they would be called. Cranmer himself advised others to do just that. Anne Boleyn's former silkwoman, Jane Wilkinson, and his colleague Peter Martyr. But he felt that he himself could not do that. He was the most obvious and most important surviving architect of the Reformation. He was its spiritual leader. And as the autumn advanced, evangelicals like him needed a bit of moral support and tender loving care. Defiant they might be, and Mary might be unwilling as yet to take them on directly, but evangelicals were hurting. Northumberland's apostasy and betrayal was a hammer blow to them. And Mary began to knock over their leaders in the evangelical bishops, like those little metal ducks you used to get at the fair in a shooting gallery. Bishop Coverdale of Exeter was deprived in September. On the 5th of September, Edmund Bonner won his case to be reinstated as Bishop of London, which was a double whammy, because it meant that the leading evangelical Nicholas Ridley was thereby deprived. John Hooper, Bishop of Gloucester, was in the crosshairs too. They were a team, these people. Cranmer's pad at Lambeth Palace was always abuzz with the evangelical-minded and they supported each other through change and they worried together. That prop would now be knocked away. But with it, or without it, Cranmer would not desert his people. And when he is accused of indecision or cowardice, it is as well to remember this, when he could have saved himself, but he did not. As the evangelicals' morale dropped, and I'm really sorry, I said I'd drop the evangelical thing and turn to Protestant, but I just can't stop the habit. Protestant doesn't seem quite right yet. Anyway, as their morale dropped, they met the barrel of bricks that was the confidence of the Catholics going up. There could, for example, be no one as cock-a-hoop as Edmund Bonner, our returning Bishop of London. Bonner, by the way, just for information and colour, would become known as Bloody Bonner for reasons which are probably pretty obvious. 
Bonner looked at Cranmer like a wolf looks at a little cute, tiny, fluffy lamekin who has got lost and is all alone in the jungle. This day is looked for that Mr Canterbury, that's Cranmer of course, just for clarification, must be placed where is meat for him. He has become very humble and very ready to submit himself in all things, but that will not serve. But that will not serve. It's a chilling phrase. Make no mistake, this is personal. From Bonner to Cranmer, from Mary to Cranmer, from both sides of the ideological divide, this was personal. And it's something that's easy to forget. For a dispute so long ago and so seemingly obscure now, it can seem a dry topic, and nobody remembers the likes of John Fox and Thomas Cranmer anymore. But this was not some academic debate. This was life, death and eternity. Bonner, however, was to find out that when he thought of Cranmer as a frightened, beaten man, he'd underestimated his man. In fact, underestimating the courage of others' convictions was to turn out to be something of a specialist subject for our Edmund. But it's not really surprising, for the traffic was an increasing tide one way towards the Catholic side of the boat. And in September, the Bishop of Dover resumed a Catholic Mass in the centre of English religion and in Cranmer's personal hood, Canterbury Cathedral. This was another hammer blow, because evangelicals assumed that this meant that their own leader, Cranmer, had also succumbed and submitted and gone to the Catholic side. If that was so, it was a scalp of unimaginable value for Mary and her Catholic supporters, and this is a theme that will be central throughout the following story. If Cranmer could be persuaded to submit, or even better, to actively recant, then the highest profile heretic in England, certainly, but possibly in all Europe, would have been brought to heel, and the propaganda value of that was incalculable. So, let me take you to Cheapside, London's main market. The normal rhythm of buying and selling has been disrupted this morning. There are groups of people standing around, stall and booth neglected. There is a buzz. So you go up to a group, you peer over a shoulder and you see some of the tradesmen reading from a printed circular. Some of the tradesmen who can read are shouting out its contents to those pressing around them. They're reading a defiant and truculent rejection of the reappearance of the mass. The letter denounced the Mass. It denounced the Bishop of Dover as a false dissembling monk for resuming its practice in the cathedral at Canterbury. Defiantly, it offered to defend the Book of Common Prayer to all comers. The words were those of Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a sensation. The relief of the beleaguered evangelicals was palpable. The Bishop of Canterbury is the old man he was, sang one Londoner when he heard it. Mary and her council were not so amused. This was effectively sedition. Feet hardly touching the floor, Cranmer found himself hauled in front of a commission to answer for his actions. One of that commission, sympathetic to him, gave him an out, an opportunity to say this was just a private paper that was unfortunately distributed. So sorry, it won't happen again. But for Cranmer, the Bible was now firmly stuffed down his hose in preparation for the descent of the cane of retribution. He stood proud. If attacking the mass was sedition, he said, then he was proud of sedition. He was told to come back the following day to face his old colleagues of the Queen's Council. 
his old colleagues, previously of Queen Jane's Council, of course, now smoothly transferred to Mary's Council, leaving a slight ooze behind them as they went. That night, Cranmer had a last supper with Peter Martyr, before Peter himself fled to the continent. I have to say that Martyr is not a surname I would choose in the 16th century. I'd have contacted Deedpole myself. The following day, 14th of September, Cranmer crossed the Thames from Lambeth Palace over to the Star Chamber to face his accusers. And from there, it was straight to the Tower of London without passing go and certainly not picking up 200 quid. On the 14th of November, Cranmer was at the head of a procession through London. Around him were halberdiers, axe heads, conspicuously turned away from him. Behind him came various Dudleys and a 16-year-old girl with a book in her hand. Just to be clear, there is nothing about religion in this trial. This was a treason trial, and Cranmer was being accused of treason by force of having sent a posse of armed men to be part of Northumberland's army that was sent to crush Mary's rebellion. Cranmer's religious crimes could only be dealt with through Rome, as far as Mary was concerned, because Cranmer had been put in place by Rome. At the trial, Cranmer showed some of his trademark characteristics, an ability to get muddled, and a disastrous ability to see the justice of the argument made against him, which is, generally speaking, not valid in the word of politics or, indeed, of law. So in this case, he started by pleading not guilty. When the lawyer went through the case again, Cranmer was struck by the points being made that he sent armed men against the person now sitting on the throne, which, as pitchforks go, is pretty much the plainest of them. And in confusion, he confessed his crime and changed his plea. All five defendants were condemned to death. Back at home, his establishment started to be dismembered, while for Thomas, the road led back to the Tower of London. A simple execution, though, would not be his lot. We get a further little glimpse of Margaret Cranmer at this point, by the way. She's not thrown onto the streets, but given a reasonable selection of kit from the Cranmer household. Where she goes, though, we're not so sure. After this burst of drama, there is another lull. Renard reported home that, to his chagrin, Jane Grey looked likely to be shown mercy by Mary, but that Cranmer was going to be toast. But it was not that simple. Mary was determined that Cranmer should go through due process as a heretic, but not just a heretic, but a man who had led an entire community into heresy and thereby imperiled all their immortal souls. If along the way a recantation could be gained, well, all well and good, but he must face up to his crimes either way. Cranmer didn't help his own cause. He kept writing to Mary to say that while he completely submitted to the royal will, an article of faith for Cranmer, of course, his religious views were unchanged. He even tried to persuade Mary not to make a dreadful mistake by returning to the old religion. It's unlikely he thought he had any chance of success of persuading Mary, but he was a man driven by a sense of duty, every bit as strong as Mary's, so he knew he must try. So, as far as Mary was concerned, he must be made to submit and see the error of his ways, and publicly so. But Cranmer had been legally constituted by Rome as the Archbishop of Canterbury, given his pallium by Rome. He must be condemned in the same way. Mary needed to restore the obedience to Rome, and she needed a new Archbishop of Canterbury, and with all of this there was a problem. 
Parliament had proved a little difficult over the re-establishment of heresy laws and restoring the obedience to Rome, mostly because they were worried that someone would take back all those lovely church lands they'd got. But also, getting hold of a new Archbishop of Canterbury was proving hard work. There were no problems with the selection criteria. Reginald Poole was the man. He was grand enough with royal blood in his veins. He was a cardinal. He was a talented man who had come within a single vote of becoming Pope, in fact. But Emperor Charles, meanwhile, wanted to make sure that the marriage between Mary and his son Philip went ahead first and so blocked Poole's confirmation for the moment. In February 1554, rebellion meant that the political temperature was raised and there was a certain amount of panic and running around. One upshot was a renewed determination to make an example of the old religious leadership. The plan was that the three most prominent men of the religious reformation would be used to demonstrate to the world the error of their ways and through them the error of the ways of the reformation. Once that was done, they could then be punished for their crimes. So, the idea was for a public disputation in Oxford where the finest minds of the Catholic religion in England would be assembled. It's very similar, actually, to the disputations that were arranged in Edwardian days. Though, of course, under Edward, the end point was not to be a burning, given that the old heresy laws had been repealed by Edward. But apart from that, you know, minor difference, similar. All this was helped by an extension of the laws to alter religion on the 4th of March achieved, with rather delicious irony, by Mary exercising the powers she didn't believe she should have as supreme head of the Church of England. Making an example meant not just Cranmer, but also Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Together, the three of these men represented the full span of the evangelical movement from the 1520s all the way through. Now, for the last three months, the three had been together in the tower, held in reasonably comfortable conditions. They'd been able to talk together and walk in the garden with Jane Grey, probably, until she went and lost her head. Now, on the 8th of March, 1554, they were removed and taken to the Bacardo, the town prison in Oxford. Sadly, the Bacardo no longer exists. It was originally the north gate in the old medieval city walls. If you go to Oxford you can visit the church which was just next to it inside the walls. Outside the walls was a ditch which was where a really beautiful street now exists called Broad Street whereon you can find a world famous bookshop called Blackwell's and also you can find a cross in the cobbled pavement. The Bacardo is called that for some complicated and incomprehensible reason. It's meaning being a very hard syllogism, whatever that is, and therefore it's a prison very hard to escape from. Bloody Oxford, really. Full of eggheads who can't even call their prison something simple and grim like wormwood scrubs. Anyway, do you know, the three of them were okay together and in reasonable comfort, prison or no prison. Nicholas Ridley managed to smuggle out a letter which said... We be merry in God. The three old men sat around discussing the Bible, and they still had servants. An old colleague of Cranmer's, Archbishop Heath, tried to put an end to that, stopping any walks on the wall and even taking away their Book of Common Prayer. But while they were together, you can feel that these three gave each other enormous strength and support. They were minds in tune, facing shared adversity. Now, you might remember back in the days of Cromwell... There's a bit of hollow laughter about a command he sent for a traitor of some kind to be taken to trial and executed. A command which kind of suggests the verdict Cromwell was expecting from the jury. 
Clearly, this is a trait of Tudor royal justice, not lovers of uncertainty, the Tudors. For this is Mary's instruction for the disputation in Oxford, which was to come. To hear in open disputations the said Cranmer, Ridley and Latimer, so as their erroneous opinions, being by the word of God justly and truly convinced, the residue of our subjects may be thereby the better established in the true Catholic faith. So, reasonably clear about the required outcome then. The disputations were carried out between the 14th and 20th of April, 1554. Picture the scene. The three old evangelicals had now been split up and were held apart, and their ordeals were carried out separately. Dr Hugh Weston presided and led the interrogations of each, handing over to other questioners, and all watched by a bank of generally unsympathetic spectators. Now, it's always been clear to me that while the life academic looks thoroughly lovely from the outside, especially somewhere as lovely as Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, Loughborough, it is in fact red in tooth and claw. Publish or die, defend your ideas and theories against all comers, that sort of thing. Plus, these days, as a student, since I've gone back to being a student at the moment, you get a real detailed proper feedback on your essays. How wild is that? But imagine having to comment on all those drippy essays, such as, I have to admit, mine. Anyway, so, Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley's time in the dock defending their religious views was not an easy time, though it might be one that they were quite used to. Latimer took a wise path, maybe, by refusing to take part. He said he'd engage in an informal conversation, but not a formal debate. Cranmer and Ridley, though, they both went for it and were sent away to prepare answers to three questions that were placed to them, and then they had to return individually and defend them in debate. It was never meant to be a real search for the truth, of course, even if such a thing were discoverable. There were a couple of surviving accounts which tend unsurprisingly to divide along confessional lines, but the long and short seems to be that Cranmer and Ridley held their own well enough. There's a rather weird interlude where a master's student came in to defend his doctorate and Cranmer was asked to be one of the disputants. That all happened, Weston thanked him, paid him a pretty compliment. Then they all got back to the business of trying to shred each other. I'm not sure why, but I suspect only a bunch of academics could possibly have done that. Not sure what the collective noun for a group of academics is, actually. Maybe a disputation of academics? Answers on a postcard. Anyway, on the Friday, Weston triumphantly declared that Cranmer had been overcome in the argument, which resulted in an angry outburst from Cranmer, who didn't really agree with that. But the three were declared to be no more members of the church. They were again split up and sent to different places and denied contact with their own servants now and denied the use of pen and paper. Cranmer was sent back to the Bacardo. Gone was the support, then, that the three men had been able to give each other. Although they clearly tried to give each other encouragement, we have a note from Ridley that he tried to smuggle out to Cranmer, for example. All three of them tried to send protests to the government about the hysterical way that the disputation had been handled, ever the optimists. However, things then eased for Cranmer. He was moved from the Bacardo to the house of a bailiff and he was able to see visitors, though not his fellow disputants. And friends came, as well as distinguished academics, all trying to change his mind. Effort was made to keep news from the outside world, but it's not clear how effectively that was done. 
but of course there were sympathetic evangelicals to be found, so I think the word leaky might be appropriate and Cranmer probably heard some stuff. Cranmer even managed to update a paper he'd written years previously called The Defence of the True and Catholic Doctrine. By the way, you may all know this, but I saw a question on the line recently asking why here in Blighty we call it the Roman Catholic religion rather than just Catholic like everywhere else. The answer, I believe, is that the line of the Church of England is that what happened in the English Reformation is that the Catholic religion was reformed. And so the distinction needs to be made between the Catholic religion, that Catholic religion, and the old version, which is to be said to be the Roman version. Or so I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. From the disputations in April 1554 all the way through to the autumn of 1555, we have a long gap where only the odd scrap of paper in Cranmer's hands managed to escape to hearten his supporters. The reason for the delay was Mary's conscientious scrupulousness. First of all, she needed her papal legate, properly appointed by the Pope, and it wasn't until November 1554 that Reginald Poole was able to arrive in England, papal legate, if not yet Archbishop of Canterbury, and stand in front of Parliament and tell them all that he was here to rebuild, not to punish. Parliament were promised no one would take their land away, and they finally re-established the heresy laws. The burning started on the 4th of February 1555, when John Rogers was burned in London in front of his family. Mary, as I say, was determined to get things right with Cranmer, and so an embassy was sent to Pope Julius III in early 1555 to make sure that Cranmer was rightly deprived, and to gain a mandate to put Cranmer on trial. And in June 1555, the mandate for the hearing was issued in Rome, delegating the decision to the new Bishop of Gloucester, James Brooks. On the 7th of September 1555, said papal mandate was served on Cranmer in person, Latimer and Ridley would be tried separately. Cranmer was also rather oddly required to present himself in Rome within 80 days to answer for his actions, a requirement with which I expect he'd love to have been able to comply. Sadly not, however. OK, so the plot heats up again. Cranmer had been given more freedom, released again to house arrest to prepare for his new trial. This trial was to happen in the passably lovely setting of the University Church in Oxford on the 12th of September 1555, and this is where I take you now. Everything here was different and new, a refresh, a restart of the consideration of Cranmer's religious crimes. This was the big one. The disputation had been window-dressing effectively. This time, it was Cranmer's whole career that was under the microscope and that was at stake. Cranmer was on his own, of course, facing his accusers and lawyers, James Brooks presiding. He was all nip and tuck. Cranmer demonstrated that he still had his academic chops, but he did drop one significant ball on the way, as I'll tell you. His defence, though, all resolutely reiterated a key difference for him. The difference between his obedience to royal authority, which was absolutely critical to him, including the Queen's authority, and on the other hand, his contempt for what he described as the usurped authority of the church. He declared that it was the greatest grief of his life to see royal representatives accusing him while in collaboration with a foreign power, declaring... Whosoever sweareth to both must needs incur perjury to the one. Cranmer's worst moment, though, came at the hands of a lawyer called Thomas Martin, 
who made the most of Cranmer's changes in doctrine along the way, and then trapped him into saying that since the king was supreme head of the church, presumably that included Nero, famous persecutor of Christians, and Cranmer was forced to agree that yes, it was. But Cranmer did better from there on in, emphasising that everything he had done had been to improve the corrupt ways of the church as primate of the realm, and that he was no traitor or heretic. It did him no good, of course. He was duly condemned, and from that point forward, the 80-day period of appeal to Rome was activated. Cranmer later wrote the obligatory letter and plea for mercy to the Queen, which included a passionate plea for her to reconsider her confessional beliefs, which might be considered unwise in a plea for mercy. The idea was to grovel, not to lecture. To be honest, I have no idea why any of them wrote these letters since they never did any good, as far as I can see, but maybe it was for the benefit of their heirs as much as anything. We think actually that Mary might have read this letter and it would fit with her conscientious nature, just as not bothering to read them would fit with Henry VIII's. Her response was to order Cranmer returned to strict confinement and to be forbidden all contact with the outside world. Too many people's interest in him had been excited by the trial and had been getting in touch with him and that must stop. Latimer and Ridley, meanwhile, went on trial and were condemned by early October. There's then a quite funny incident in which Cranmer wrote to the Queen, suggesting she send an expert to dispute with Latimer and Ridley so that they could maybe change their minds, since, of course, if they recanted, according to canon law, their lives would be spared. Here is another sign of the humanity of the man, but that's not the funny bit. Cranmer wrote that he himself, if persuaded, would go to the Pope himself and not only kiss his feet, but another part also. I am shocked, I have to say. Shocked. Thomas, really? Paul and Mary seem to have read the letter as genuine, though, and it's possible it was doctored and the kissing another part added in. Anyway, I tell you all this because it's the start of a long period of psychological pressure on Cranmer. Now, when I use the phrase brainwashing, I do not suggest that Paul and Mary set out to torture and brainwash Cranmer. And no point is he ever beaten up or anything, though there is the small matter of the threat, you know, of being burned to death. The motivation for what follows over the next six months is at least in part genuinely to change the three men's minds and save their souls. But it effectively shares many of the techniques of brainwashing, insofar as I know what those are, given that I've never done it. The closest I've ever got has been failed attempts to persuade my children to do the washing up. But what you'll see is isolation, continual psychological pressure against the background of the stake. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Anyway, the first man up was a Dominican, Pedro de Soto. He did his honest and level best, but none of them were for turning. And with no 80-day period required, the punishments of Latimer and Ridley could go ahead immediately. And so on the 15th of October, they were downgraded from the priesthood, and on the 16th of October, they were duly to be burned. So, to get to Broad Street, outside the walls you need to walk through the gate over which was Cranmer's prison. 
the Bacardo. As Latimer and Ridley's procession moved through the gate, the two friends hoped to get a glimpse of Cranmer to shout a greeting and an encouragement. But at that very moment, Cranmer was still arguing with De Soto. However, once the ceremony was about to go ahead, Cranmer was brought back to the tower of the gatehouse to make sure that he could see what was going on. What he was forced to watch is at once inspiring and utterly horrible. The science of a burning is a tricky thing. The objective and merciful thing is to have a fire that is hot, hot, hot. In many of the woodcuts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, the wood is piled up to the chest. Hot, hot, hot means two hopes. One is that the victim will suffocate quickly in the fumes rather than be burned, or that the fire will reach a small tub of gunpowder around the neck, which can therefore mercifully explode. But if the wood is green, or the fire poorly set, then the poor victim can die from slowly burning the flesh from their body in what must be the most excruciating agony, and which could take 45 minutes. So, the inspiring bit. The two friends removed their clothing to their undershirts. People took the clothes, so they were a bequest of a kind in a charitable tradition. But also, if you did not take your outer clothes off, it took longer to die. So there were practical considerations here. The two were then tied to a stake. As they stood together, these friends and fellow travellers, who had seen so much change and trauma, they must have been utterly terrified. And so Latimer called out to his friend, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. They're quite some words, aren't they? And so they did, of course. Latimer then died quickly through the ideal route. Ridley's fate, though, went completely the other way. I'll spare you the details. Fox's Acts and Monuments is available online for free, but he took 45 horrifying minutes to die. In the prison, in the Bacardo, Cranmer saw all of it, every hideous minute. He dropped to his knees, tore the cap from his head and cried out at the vision of his friend's agonies. The focus now was on Cranmer alone, and it's now that Cardinal Poole became an active part in this story. He wrote a massive letter in Latin to Cranmer, some of it drawn from his previous writings. The motivation for Poole's letter is partly revealed when Poole told Philip that a recantation would do much good. Poole was out for a propaganda prize. The leading architect of the Reformation brought to obedience would be massive news. To say, though, that this was the only motivation would be selling Poole short. He almost certainly also wanted to save Cranmer's soul. His approach, though, was to take out the biggest sledgehammer he could find and lay about Cranmer's head as hard as possible. So, after a few reams on the theology of it all, he then went on a personal tirade. You drove Henry to his divorce. You led thousands of people astray. You lived with a concubine that you illegally call your wife. Your career has been nothing but deception, self-indulgence and ambition. Maybe somebody ought to have whispered to Paul about the concept of a praise sandwich, though that would probably been wasted since sandwiches hadn't been invented yet. But it's difficult to imagine anything less likely to persuade anyone. Paul actually quickly regretted sending the letter. Not because it had been so immoderate, poorly designed and ranty, but because he regretted wasting the time. What was the point, he said, of giving medicine to the terminally ill? 
But, you know, no rest for the wicked, because at this point Mary handed over the two unapologetic letters Cranmer had written to the Queen in September. Paul's next reply was even more ferocious and ended with a plea for him to repent. I say, if you not be plucked out by the ear, you be utterly undone, both body and soul. Cranmer was immune, though, to the arguments of both Poole and de Soto, and in fact, he concocted a rather devious plan to save himself by appealing to Rome and demanding a legal review, and he managed to sneak his appeal out secretly from his prison. But Thomas was now increasingly isolated and alone, left to the company of two guards and a personal servant, unless he was visited by someone seeking to change his mind. The personal servant now is very significant. Put from your mind the idea that this was a man sympathetic to our man's opinions and empathetic of his pain and fear. There was probably a man called Nicholas Woodson, very much a committed Catholic, and very much committed to seeing Cranmer recant. By the way, Much of what we know about Cranmer's last months came from a virulently Catholic source, quite possibly written by Nicholas Harpsfield, the contemporary biographer of Thomas More. This is handy, since it is a counterpoise to the equally virulently Protestant John Fox. At this point, a sister of Cranmer entered the story, possibly one Alice Cranmer, who was not of her brother's religious persuasion, as it happens. And it could be that she worked on the Queen and promised to help to get Thomas to recant. Whether that is so or not, there was a change in policy. Cranmer was moved into the house of the VC of Oxford University, who was also a personal enemy of Cranmer, it must be said. But at least once he was there, he was more in an academic atmosphere, a more normal atmosphere that he would have been used to, surrounded by people, treated as a rather exceptional and odd guest. And at the same time, Another Dominican friar, Fray Juan de Villagarcia, was set to work on him. This time, although outwardly no more successful, a crack appeared in Cranmer's intellectual armour. Cranmer's self-belief was based on two pillars, the belief in the royal supremacy and the Pope as Antichrist. It was hard that now he found himself in opposition to his monarch, but now Via Garcia managed to dent his conviction that the Pope was Antichrist. The foundation of Cranmer's resistance groaned, cracked and grumbled. Some dates for you, since that's what history is about after all. On the 4th of December, Cranmer was deprived in Rome and on the 14th of December, the consistory in Rome broke out in applause for the new Archbishop of Canterbury and Primate of England, Reginald Poole. By the 22nd of January 1556, the papers had arrived in England. Cranmer's flight path to paradise had been cleared for takeoff. At this point, Cranmer's personal servant, Nicholas Woodson's role, becomes critical. Surrounded by hostile critics, with his beliefs under fierce pressure from Via Garcia and others, Cranmer was increasingly reliant on Woodson, and increasingly he leaned on him for support. The first sign that things were changing was when in his loneliness Cranmer appeared in the cathedral and took part in a mass. When Via Garcia found out, he was immediately on the attack. What did Cranmer now think about the primacy of the Pope? Cranmer had not yet completely broken down. He fought back as hard as he could, and the result was a bitter shouting match. When the shouting match was over, 
Cranmer turned to the person he saw as his last remaining friend, Woodson. But Woodson was furious. He stormed out of the house, broke off all contact with the old man. This is when it really starts to feel like some sort of brainwashing camp. On the 28th, Cranmer begged Woodson to explain why he had left and to spend the day with him. Woodson agreed, as long, he wrote, as you pull yourself together and choose to be counted among us. But Cranmer still hesitated when Woodson came to visit, and so Woodson did the same thing again. A second furious walkout was the result. Cranmer was now physically and mentally exhausted. In tears, he now promised to write a recantation and now finally sat down to write. Recantation number one. The architect of the English Reformation was almost turned, but there was still a flicker of self-belief. So in this recantation, he used the same get-out clause that Archbishop Wareham had tried all those millions of years ago with Henry VIII, with the phrase at the end of it, insofar as the law of Christ and the laws and customs will permit. Excitedly, Woodson sent the text off to the Queen and Council. But before 24 hours were gone, Thomas had rediscovered more resistance and he sent a second recantation, which was even less amenable. That was followed by a third, though, which was a complete swing back to capitulation, simply submitting himself to the Catholic Church of Christ and to the Pope, supreme head of the same church. While the Privy Council gathered up this increasing evidence of mental and moral collapse, on the 2nd of February, Thomas attended Candlemas. What a relief it must have been for him. The acceptance back into a community, the temporary pleasure of complete submission. He agreed to take part in a requiem mass. The news spread like a virus, and rumours spread that he was now to be discharged. But deep in Cranmer's soul, a spark of resistance glowed still. And from the 14th of February, it seemed that whatever his submission had achieved, it was spectacularly poor at buttering parsnips, because to stop the people thinking that the council had gone soft on crime, Thomas was put back in the Bacardo. That little spark of resistance flared into life that very day. The 14th of February was the very day that Cranmer was to be downgraded from a priest. The Pope had clearly taken advice, and the people assembled to do the dirty work were some of Thomas's most virulent enemies. John Harpsfield, and notably Edmund Bonner who, having been stripped of his bishopric by Cranmer himself a few years before, was almost dribbling with pleasure at the thought of returning the favour, evidence, should you need it, that what goes around comes around. Theatre played a clear and present part in the business of religious war. Think of Latimer Cromwell and the burning of John Forrest and the image of the Welsh saint. Cranmer was placed high up on the rude loft in the cathedral while Harpsfield preached about his crimes. When that bit of fun was all over, Cranmer was brought down to the altar to be stripped and all that. But at this point, he dramatically produced his paper, his appeal to the General Council of the Church of Rome. Ha-ha! Nothing could stop Bonner, though, who had Cranmer dressed up in a parody of archiepiscopal robes so that he could then strip them off him, and then went on a rant so extended and vicious that the Bishop of Ely tried to step in and stop him, and a full-blown row between the two of them ensued while Cranmer himself was chucking out flippant remarks. It's the kind of light farce that Alan Akebourne might have enjoyed writing. Cranmer was then hauled off back to the Bacardo, 
the whole event ruined. Had Cranmer really submitted then? Fear Garthia wasn't sure and he returned to the attack, but the fight had gone out of the old archbishop. Indeed, I think you can attain salvation through your faith and likewise I can in mine. These are Cranmer's weary words to Via Garthia, which of course these days would seem an entirely reasonable and unexceptional article of faith. To Via Garthia, of course, as it would have been once to Via Garthia, of course, it was an outrage. And to be fair, just a few weeks ago, it would have been so to Thomas Cranmer, he'd have been reaching for the torch as well. There is maybe a slightly fanciful parallel here. Some have seen in Thomas More's words at the end of his trial a final acceptance that his pursuit of heretics had been wrong. Maybe Cranmer had for a while been brought to the same realisation. Alternatively, he might well just have wanted to make Via Garthia stop and leave him alone. Now was the time for another written recantation, but the fourth, actually, was less satisfactory than the third. So close, but not quite there. The final flood, though, was released from the sluices by the arrival on the 24th of February of the writ announcing that the date of Cranmer's execution would be the 7th of March. The result was on the 26th of February, a fresh recantation from Cranmer, his fifth. Cranmer even asked for, and received, absolution, and afterwards he repeatedly celebrated his joy at returning to the Catholic faith. The job was done. His Catholic sister was at Oxford, and she may well have been allowed to see him. Wild. The statement of Cranmer's fifth recantation was taken by the church authorities. It was rushed to the printers in a right old lather, and launched triumphantly onto the world. Great, this is brilliant. On the 13th of March, just a few days later, those very same printers were being threatened with legal proceedings if they sent any more of this thing out and were told to hand them in and get them destroyed pronto. Toot sweet. Excuse me? You want me to do what? The exploitation of this propaganda coup had been fluffed, muffed. The ball had been dropped. Events had acquired the general shape of a pair. Cranmer's printed declaration had the signatures of the two Spanish-Dominican friars at the bottom of it. With feeling against Philip and his Spanish court growing every day, the result was scorn and just disbelief. The recantation, far from creating a chorus of despair from the heretics, was simply mocked as either the result of pressure or fibbing or just plain wishful thinking. And so the order came back to Oxford. A sixth, clean recantation was required. The date of Cranmer's execution had now been set as the 21st of March. But while this political fiasco rolled out in the background, it's probable that back in Oxford, Cranmer expected that his execution would now be cancelled. After all, he had recanted. So as far as canon law was concerned, he'd earned his life. So... When Cranmer received a visitor on the 17th of March, he may well have hoped, or even expected, that they brought good news with them. After all, surely that had been the point of all those Dominicans, hadn't it? And Poole's letter. All they wanted was to save his soul as a good Christian man. The man carrying the news to him was one Henry Cole, now provost of Eton, formerly part of Reginald Poole's household in Italy and it suggests that Reginald Poole either had a hand in the decision which followed, 
or at the very least, he must have acquiesced in it. But as the word of the Venetian ambassador made clear, here echoed back to Mary. The main author of this decision was the Queen. His iniquity and obstinacy was so great against God and your grace that your clemency and mercy could have no place with him. But you are now constrained to minister judgment. Mary would have him die, whatever he did or whatever he said. Back in Oxford, Cranmer took the news calmly, or outwardly so at least, but he asked Cole only that his personal estates were settled on his son. Cole rapped at him that he should be concentrating on his loyalty to the Catholic cause and left. No mercy either there then. On the 18th of March, Cranmer complied by composing a long and comprehensive recantation of all his Protestant beliefs. And this time, only his signature was on it. This time, there could be no mess-ups to get the full publicity benefit from this amazing coup, the submission of one of the biggest living names in the Protestant world. This would rip the heart out of the evangelicals home and abroad. Here was the plan. On the 21st of March, Cranmer himself would speak from the pulpit at the University Church in Oxford. He would tell the world what a dreadful thing he had done. His entire recantation would be printed out and it would be in everybody's hands in the church so they didn't miss a glorious word, ready for distribution straight away, and it would be distributed to the whole world. Then, Cranmer would march in procession to where the pyre waited for him outside the walls of Oxford, Coles would preach a final sermon just to make sure the point was made, and then Cranmer would be burned. The day before he was due to be burned, the 20th of March, was a strangely quiet one for Cranmer. He received a ring and a message, though, from a sister, the contents of which message were not recorded. Harpsfield's record of the event describes the sister as not the Catholic one. Hmm, interesting. 21st of March dawned grey and windswept. Cranmer's procession was made ready and set out for the university church, Cranmer himself flanked by the men of the moment, De Soto and Via Garcia. When they arrived, the church was packed. A hubbub of local dignitaries and JPs, all the great and the good in attendance, all agog to hear what was going to happen. There was even a royal representative, Lord Williams, the Princess Elizabeth's very civilised keeper, or jailer, if you like, as it happens. And first up was Henry Cole. As you know, he'd been supposed to deliver the sermon later, while Cranmer was standing by the stake waiting to be burned. But you know what? Who wants to get wet and spoil all their nice things now that the day had dawned so rainy? Such a drag to get wet when you were burning somebody. So, Cole changed the plans and decided to speak at the church instead, where it was nice and dry and warm. And his sermon basically told the world why Cranmer was so horrid, but it had a job to do. It also had to explain why he was being burned, why he was being burned even though he'd recanted, and therefore, according to the church's own law, he really should not be. And this was a tricky job. Cole went for three reasons. Because Cranmer had allowed Catherine of Aragon's divorce, and that was a heinous crime. Then there was the openness of his heresy in England and his persistence in it. And then thirdly, the icing on this particular cake was because someone had to pay for the death of Thomas More and John Fisher. So, I guess you could call this blood feud, essentially. Next up, of course, then, was the big one. Thomas Cranmer, ex-Archbishop, would like to talk to you all about why what he had done was utterly abominable. 
and how glad he was to be back in the path of righteousness and to deliver his submission to the Catholic Church and the Pope, who wasn't the Antichrist, by the way, despite what he said before. And he wasn't even just a naughty boy. So everyone knew, as I say, what he was going to say, because they had it printed in front of them. They were holding it. They could sing along if they wanted to. Cranmer had been provided with a special stage in the middle of the church so that everyone would have the opportunity to see the moment as clearly as they could. Now was his moment, and the grey-haired ex-archbishop started to speak. He asked the people to pray for his forgiveness, and he launched on the prepared speech. Slightly oddly, he added, Yet one thing grieveth my conscience more than all the rest, whereof, God willing, I intend to speak more hereafter. Still, he continued on more traditional lines. There was an exhortation to love God, the crown, and thy neighbour. The need for the rich to avoid covetousness and give to the poor. He recited the creed. He affirmed the basics of the faith, though he omitted to mention trust in the great councils of the church, as it happens, which was careless of him, you know. And then finally he came to the long-looked-for moment, and he told the crowd that he would now unburden himself of the great thing, which so much troubleth my conscience. It would, of course, be the denunciation of his own untrue books and writing, contrary to the truth of God's word. Cole, the Dominicans, settled back and relaxed into the warm embrace of fulfilled pleasure, and their satisfaction grew, because Cranmer was indeed condemning his writing. He was condemning the writing, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death. Hang on. All such bills and papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation. He's not saying it. Cranmer was shouting now, eager to get out every possible word he could. But the crowd was in chaos. Joy, confusion, hatred, rage. As for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist. With all his false doctrine, he yelled. And Lord Williams, in outrage, and with a rather sweet optimism, actually, yelled at him. Had he forgotten what he was supposed to do? Sweetie. As for the sacrament, I believe as I have taught in my book against the Bishop of Winchester. But finally the authorities were on it. Stop the heretic's mouth, snarled Cole. For so much as my hand offendeth, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished therefore. But now greedy hands reached to pull Cranmer down. Eventually his mouth had been stopped and Cranmer was now silent. All sense of triumph and decorum banished, Cranmer was shoved into a procession and hustled out of the university church, surrounded by his shocked and horrified persecutors. In chaos, he was hurried through Oxford streets, back towards the Picardo gatehouse in the walls, news spreading ahead of him like a shockwave as he came. Via Garcia was in a daze, still not quite exactly sure what had happened, refusing to understand. Non facase it? Non facase it? You didn't do it? You didn't do it? Repeated over and over as Cranmer stayed silent. Slightly smugly, possibly. Interesting little point here, actually. The Catholic source of this bit of the story, one J.A., who gives us this stuff, also wrote that Via Garcia said bitterly to his erstwhile prisoner that Cranmer would have declared the Pope to be the head of the church if it could have saved his head. And Cranmer agreed with him. Now there's a thing. Cranmer agreed with him. Thomas always did have that streak of a rather brutal honesty and self-loathing, such as when he accepted the Act of Six Articles under Henry VIII and did not refuse them. But here's the thing, of course, that has been reflected on so many times. If Paul 
or probably Mary particularly actually, had not been so vindictive, Cranmer would have delivered for them an astonishing victory for the Catholic cause. They had snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Under the gatehouse of the Bicardo they went, the procession and seething a crowd arriving in Broad Street, or rather Horsemonger Street, as I think it was then called. This, of course, was where his friends Latimer and Ridley had died before him. There was the stake and the wood set around it. Grandma was led forward, stripped of his clothes to his long undershirt, his cap removed, showing all his grey hair and his feet made bare. He was bound to the stake with iron chains, and Via Garcia desperately continued to harangue him, exhorting him to change his mind before it was too late. But Thomas had chosen his path. The wood was set around him, fire put to it. Thomas had one final drama to enact. He stretched out his hand into the fire as he'd promised, This hand hath offendeth. As the flames flew up, he asked for Jesus to receive his spirit and kept repeating, Unworthy hand! until mercifully quickly the fumes overcame him and Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, was finally dead. Well, there's a story. I've gone on way longer than I meant to, I have to say, and I have to ask myself why. One is that it's just an immortal story and should be remembered. Secondly, because as we've said, it contributed powerfully to a strand in English history that will be hugely significant, part of the narrative of resistance to the Catholic Church, which became inextricably and increasingly linked to foreign domination as the century wore on. And then, I'm sorry to have to say, but I cannot help but like Thomas in many ways. In places he was uncertain, wavering, dithering, a very compromised figure, accused of ambition and dishonesty. A contradictory sort of figure, self-doubting, self-loathing sometimes, who often judged himself far more harshly than anyone else could. Seemingly weak sometimes, and yet others very powerful, relentless, relentless, academically sharp and ruthless in his pursuit in the days of Edward of his vision of how religion should be, irrespective of the cost. Compassionate, yet brutal. What I would hate Cranmer to be remembered for is any of that Catholic versus Protestant stuff because his life is a notable demonstration that all three confessional groups at the time, Catholic, Lutheran and Reformed, believed that heretics should be burned. Mary and Paul were exceptional only in the matter of degree, not of principle. Thomas himself had pursued Joan Boucher, even though his anointed monarch, Edward VI, had begged him not to do so. It is also just a story of enormous drama, and of a man who in the end was effectively given the choice about where his loyalties lay, and in so doing, preserved for himself a place in history, which I hope will be never-ending. certainly keeps a few Oxford tour guides in business. Super quickly then, what of Margaret Cranmer and their children, Thomas and Margaret? Margaret Senior fled to Europe, and married an English Protestant and printer, Edward Whitchurch. Whitchurch did manage to negotiate the inheritance of Thomas's property in a roundabout sort of way. When Elizabeth came to the throne, they came back to England, and a marriage was arranged for Margaret Junior. But all this sounds better, doesn't it? However, when Edward Whitchurch died in 1562, Margaret Cranmer remarried a man called Bartholomew Scott, which was a mistake, since it appeared that old Bart was only after her money... Margaret fled with her jewels and had to appeal for protection to the Archbishop at that time, and Bartholomew left the country to avoid prosecution. Margaret Cranmer finally died around 1573. She had not had an easy life. That is it then. Sorry to take so long. 
on Thursday, this Thursday, 21st of March, to mark the 463rd anniversary of Thomas Cranmer's death, you can hear Professor McCulloch talk about Cranmer's whole life and reflect on his legacy. The week after that, I'm going to take a week off and we'll be back with Mary and her struggles to return her kingdom and her sister to the true faith on the 7th of April. Meanwhile, let me commend Dearman McCulloch's book to you about Thomas Cranmer one more time. It's simply called Thomas Cranmer and it is everything you could wish to know and a rattling good read. And then, until Thursday, I will see you then. Good luck, everyone, and have a great four days. Thank you.